Welcome everyone to episode 36 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. I'm honored to have Dr. David Griffin on the show today. He is a battalion chief in Charleston Fire Department. And I had the pleasure of meeting him this past fall. Uh, he was the MVP All-Star for our health and wellness conference. Just did an awesome job. Now he talked for four hours there. And, you know, he talks a lot uh, on the road, 150 times plus a year, up to eight hours at a time. So I narrowed down the scope to just one hour today. I wanted to talk about his post-traumatic growth from a very tragic fire in which nine of his brother firefighters passed away. And he was the first in engine operator. He was, he was right there for all of that. So he had an incredible journey, went through some really dark times, but came out on the other side doing great things, not just for himself and for his fire department, but for the just the fire service in general. So uh, if you ever have the chance to see him live, please, please do. Uh, this podcast is great, but but being there, being in tune with that room and, and the audio that he'll play, uh, it, it's just a very powerful presentation. So I implore you, if you ever have the opportunity, check out Dr. David Griffin. But for now, let's just talk about his post-traumatic growth. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. I'm very, very happy and excited today to have my very special guest, Dr. David Griffin. Good morning to you, sir. How are you? Good morning, Jim. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, so I, I want to just dive right into this because there's, I know there's so much to talk about uh, throughout this process. So if you will, could you give our listeners a synopsis of the Super Sofa Fire on June 18th, 2007? So the Soma Superstore fire, it occurred on June 18th, 2007, Charleston, South Carolina, 1807 Savannah Highway, which is a little over a couple of miles from the actual city of Charleston, the downtown city. I'd been on a job for a couple of years at that point. I just made a backup driver about two months before June 18th. So I was in my new capacity as an assistant engineer was my position. And in that capacity, I was eagerly waiting on my first fire to put my training to use and test myself, as most people like to do. Well, that day, I had gone to work my normal operational procedure, done the things that I usually do, gone through my routine. I wasn't really big on training back then. I really wasn't big on a lot of things back then. It was just go to work, do your job, and go home. And that was unfortunate because I missed about two years of my career where I could have learned a lot. That day we did our normal stuff around the station, checked the truck off, cleaned the station, did some things together as a company, went to the grocery store, bought dinner, came back, sat down and ate dinner. About five o'clock after dinner, myself and the firefighter went out back and started to clean the rig. And as we cleaned the rig, um, someone drove by the Sofa Superstore and saw some smoke. It was just a civilian. Ended up calling 911 to report the fire, and from there we were dispatched, obviously, and we arrive on scene. And as we arrive on scene, it's a trash fire, but it's a pretty significant trash fire. But as we're trying to figure out which way to play this, we, we take a detour around the back of the building because we're trying to really find where the fire is because it's really hard to determine. So as we take that detour back around the front, there's another engine that beats us there, and they're already actively trying to fight the fire with a couple of hose lines. A ladder truck arrives on scene. I end up at the front of the building. 
And at this point, things are starting to get really confusing. We're trying to figure out where supply lines coming from. What other engines do we have on scene? Guys are starting to go inside, but at this point, the building is pretty much clear. There's not a lot of smoke inside of the building. It's just in the loading dock area, which was an extension of the showroom, if you will. So as guys start to continue to go inside the building and look for the active fire, the fire unfortunately is already in the concealed space above the showrooms. So the building, it was nine foot was a false ceiling. Between the false ceiling and the actual roof structure, which is about four to five feet, there was lightweight truss construction. So that those trusses were being heated up while our guys were in there, unbeknownst to most of us until we started to pop some tiles and we saw the smoke. And then obviously the smoke is starting to mushroom around the guys and then guys are becoming disoriented and I'm hearing of one guy missing all the way up to one point. Somebody tells me we're missing over 26 people. And at that point, I'm standing at the pump handle at the front of the building. I'm probably 30 feet from the front door. And I'm attempting to pump the fire to the best of my knowledge. But I realized that day that my knowledge level wasn't where it was supposed to be. And I truly believe that I could have made myself a better driver if I would have taken the job more serious. And unfortunately, that's the truth for a lot of people on the profession. They think they know it until the day they don't know it. And unfortunately, that's the day that is too late. And I was that guy. And so trying to figure out what I'm doing, I can't get the supply line uh, connected correctly. It's hard to get the truck to go into pump because there's a little quirk with the truck. I'm having to try to figure out Waiting on the supply line, multiple lines are being pulled off my rig. I'm going into a vacuum because I don't understand why I'm going into a vacuum because we did not have any large diameter hose. The only supply hose we had was two and a half supply line. My supply line was 1,850 feet in total length, 1,750 feet of three, excuse me, 1,750 feet of two and a half connected to 100 feet of three inch. So that was my supply line for this over 42,000 square foot building full of furniture. And at that time, I didn't realize that that wasn't enough volume of water because I had never really worked with volume of water. I had never used five inch or anything like that. So I'm doing what I've always done, thinking there's going to be a different result. And that just didn't work out. So after we start to do accountability, we start to realize that we have quite a few people missing, but we're just not sure until we do get a list of eight people. And unfortunately, once we get the list of eight people, one of the first bodies is found and that person wasn't even on the list of eight people that we had found to be missing. So we were still actively finding people hoping that that was the correct amount. So ended up nine good firefighters lost their lives. As they lose their lives that night, we're sending guys in to obviously recover their bodies, waiting for the coroner to arrive so we can pull the bodies out. So that was about 10.30 p.m. from my recollection of the first body that came out, and that was engineer Brad Beatty. He was the engineer on Engine 19. His entire crew and himself lost their lives that night. So as the crews pull them out, pull him out of the building, I was not on the recovery teams or the search crews. I was outside at the pump panel. So I can only imagine what those guys, my friends, went through inside the building trying to find these guys that were buried under lightweight trusses. They were buried under furniture. A lot of their gear was um, not intact, obviously, because they were burned so severely. And so as they're pulling the guys out, the first one is Brad Beatty. We line up in a sea of blue. We salute Brad Beatty. And for me, that's when it got very real. I didn't really process it until I saw them carrying Brad Beatty out. And then from about 10.30 p.m. until about 4.30 a.m., 
recovery efforts continued and we continued to pull the rest of the nine guys out of there until Bra uh, Brandon Thompson was the last person to be removed. It was about 4.30ish in the morning and his dad and his brother were actually there to help with that recovery process. So that was very hard to, to see as well. So as they pulled the last person out, which was firefighter Brandon Thompson, he was actually working a, a buddy shift for somebody. And then he got switched over to the ladder truck, which puts to put him on ladder five. So think about the moves that took place to put him inside the building. So after this takes place, we're all trying to console each other, really trying to figure out what is going on. It was kind of hard to process. Most of our engines are running out of fuel. So our shop was bringing us five gallon buckets of diesel fuel with a funnel to refuel our rigs that were still running outside. Sun starts to come up a little after 6.30ish and you have a lot of news cameras there, a lot of different people there from other fire departments just trying to help out. You had Red Cross there, chaplains were there. Down the street at the station that I was at, that's where the most of the family of the Fallens, of the Fallen was. They were trying to console each other. You had city council members there. You had uh, chaplains there. My wife was actually there trying to figure out if I was one of the nine guys because she hadn't heard from me and we had not released the names yet. So as that takes place, uh, my wife said it was very, very bad environment down there. We weren't prepared for anything like that. Most places aren't. So I was actually told just to hang out at the scene and someone would bring me my little red pickup truck to go home. So I, I remember doing that and Somebody brought my truck to the scene, handed me my keys, and that was pretty much it. And I drove home from there. And as I tried to make my way home, I realized that I wasn't processing really what I had just gone through. I was still kind of running off adrenaline. And once the adrenaline wore off, I had to pull off the side of the road and kind of collect myself and process everything that was going through my mind. So once I did that, made my way home, and I saw my wife, and obviously she was very upset. And I said, sweetheart, I just I don't really want to talk about it right now. So I went to bed. I had some people come to my house in the middle of the afternoon to ask me some questions about the fire. So I answered their questions, uh, did some things around the house to try to get my mind off of that day. Uh, the following day was a Wednesday. I had that day off as well. So again, worked around the house, blew off some steam, woke up Thursday morning, went back to the same engine company and the same firehouse with the same crew. And that was really difficult because we didn't really do any type of uh, mental health recovery for any of this. We didn't really talk about it. Uh, we didn't have any kind of counselors come in. We didn't have peer support. And that's, we didn't know any better anyways. We just did what we knew and we thought it would just eventually get better because that's what we thought everybody did. We had no knowledge of mental health or anything like that. And that's really when the post-traumatic stress issue really hit our organization and Hence the reason why from that day we had 246 people that's documented by firehouse reporting that were on the job in Charleston. And as of today, there's only about 68 of those 246 left from that time of the fire. So as you can imagine, we lost a host of people to retirements, to um, issues with working on the job, to sleep issues, to family issues, to everything you could imagine. So the collateral damage was, was spread quite far from this event as well. And then from then until now, we have tried to develop our organization into what it is. And it's, it's always a continual challenge because you never really get over something like this until unfortunately, the last guy that was there that day is no longer on the job. And that's going to be, you know, a couple of generations until that's all gone.
Wow. Um, <clears throat> now, the, I know obviously everyone went and kind of dealt with things their own way. For you, you were already a um, professional athlete. You played, I know you played baseball at the Citadel and then even went into the minors. You ended up after all this focusing on MMA. Could you kind of touch on that whole experience and why you ended up going there? I did. I was always an athlete. Still, I consider myself an athlete today. I try to keep myself in uh, high, very high shape physically, mentally, uh, cardiovascular. That way I'm always ready for the job and really just ready for life. So when I finished playing baseball, I still wanted to continue my aspirations of being an athlete. I just didn't really know how to express myself and what my my new talent would be, I guess you would say. About that time, mixed martial arts was becoming very big. I always had liked combat sports. I always liked boxing. I always liked wrestling. I wrestled in high school. So I thought I would give it a try. And I was, at that point, I was probably 200 and I was probably pushing 260. And uh, I was, I was, I was still in shape. I was, I was about 260 and probably about seven or 8% body fat. So I was still in very good shape. It was just, I was doing uh, bodybuilding at that point. So I was just lifting a lot of heavy weights, eating a lot of food. It was just a lot of weight on my body. And I didn't really like doing that because I really didn't feel like the athlete I thought I could be. So that's why I started the MMA. So I walked into the gym the first day. I just was full of anger. I was mad at the world. And my buddy had told me about the sport. And he said, you know, you can take your anger out and it's okay to do that because it's in a gym. And eventually, if you want to fight, you can fight. And so I went in that first day. And again, I, I walked in and those those guys were looking me up and down like this dude. I was 5'9", 260, so I was very, very big, and they looked at me like I was fresh meat. So I thought it was kind of funny because I'm thinking I'm going to stomp these guys, you know. And I got in there with my friend uh, Ryan, who is now a very good friend of mine. He actually works on the job with me in Charleston. And uh, he was probably 180 pounds, and I'm thinking I'm going to smoke this dude. And about 30 seconds later, he had me in a rear naked choke, and I was tapping out. And I said, wow, this isn't how this was supposed to work out. So I realized that I had to uh, hone my anger, but I also had to learn how to be an actual mixed martial artist. I had to learn jujitsu. I had to learn Muay Thai kickboxing. I really had to learn how to control myself, but I also had to learn how to um, increase my, my cardio and lose a lot of weight. So, man, I just dove right into it. I started training a lot, but I still had that anger deep down inside of me, and that's what allowed me to go in there and do what I did when I started. But I, I began to realize that, if, if you know a lot about mixed martial arts, the more upset you get and the more angered you get at your opponent, it actually zaps the energy out of you. So you dump your adrenaline. And by the end of my career, you know, four years of fighting and training, I realized that I really didn't need to get upset anymore to actually go in there and fight somebody. It was a, it's a competition. It's a chess match. It's just physical. And instead of us moving pawns on a chessboard, I'm punching somebody in the face. So it was just a little bit of a different game. But I did allow me to process my thoughts. But at first, I didn't really get that. And I was diving into a lifestyle there. I was, you know, I was drinking a lot of alcohol. I was taking a lot of painkillers, muscle relaxers uh, that were prescribed to me for other injuries. But I was, you know, taking them to a point to where it was dangerous for me. And it wasn't ill-intentioned. It was just the way that it helped me numb my mind and numb my body because I was really upset about things that occurred on the fire for my own doing, not from anybody else. It was my own, my own problems I had with my performance that day, because over time when all these reports began to come out, 
I realized that I wasn't as good at the job as I had thought that I was. And unfortunately, there's people listening to this right now that are firefighters and they're not as good at the job as they think they are. And unfortunately, I have the right to say that because I was that guy and I couldn't even put the truck in the pump. And so that's one of my biggest missions once I finished mixed martial arts was to really uh, go back to school and, and learn why do we do that as human beings? Why do we think that we can just fake it till we can make it? Why do we think that we'll just figure it out? And then we don't, when we don't figure it out, we're upset about it. We're mad at ourselves, and we want other people to feel sorry for us. I'm the opposite. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. That's a hundred percent my doing that I didn't work and train hard enough to learn the skills I needed to be efficient and effective on that specific day. Now that turned my life around and now that's why I work very hard to train myself and educate myself. And I know that I still have a lot to learn, but there are people in this profession, they put that t-shirt on and they think they're all knowing. And those are the guys that can barely lift the ladder, can barely tie a knot, can barely perform EMS operations. And they're the guys that tell you they know everything. And that's really what my mission was once I went back to school and learned more about human behavior and leadership and organizational processes and it kind of brings me to where I am today. That's really my mission is to get the word out there about that. Coming from a guy that's still on the job. I'm a battalion chief. I just worked a 24-hour shift last night in the street in a battalion vehicle, and I'm on my first day off of my 48 hours off. So when I talk about what I, what I talk about today, I'm also living that out there, doing it every single day. I'm not a guy that just talks about it, and I retired and said, well, this is what I used to do. I'm, I'm actively doing that today. And that I'm proud of that because, you know, I could have easily left the job after this, but I didn't want to do that. I don't feel like I would be honoring the guys in my opinion, in my situation, I want to be able to continue to work. And that's why I keep doing it. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Now, just to put things in perspective, when you were fighting, you were 260 pounds. What, what are you walking around right now at? I weighed myself this morning after about a 45 minute CrossFit workout and I was 169. Yeah. There you go. So, I mean, you were completely different built back then. Just, just even to do this compared to your, what you're walking around today. Um, Would you mind touching on that that last fight that you had? Because I think that it really kind of sensed you to where, all right, this isn't for me. I need to change things. It's a wake up call, if you will. Preparation for that last fight was interesting. I had been an amateur fighter for maybe a couple of years, probably two years, and I hadn't had that many amateur fights, but I was improving enough to where my coach thought that I was ready to take that step, so I was thankful for that, and I had a unique opportunity to fight a guy from the UFC uh, in Charleston. We had a a pretty large event here, and his name was Houston Alexander, and back then he was a really good good fighter. I fought him – a couple of months after he fought a guy named Kimbo Slice, which was a big time street fighter back in the early 2000s. So I was really excited about this fight. I prepared uh, very, very, very hard. Um, on my days on shift, my trainer would actually come to the station and I would do my my pad work and my Muay Thai kickboxing work with him. We'd do some cardio. And obviously if I got a call, we would stop and I'd get on the rig and go. So that was always fun. Um, on my off days, I would train twice a day, morning and, at, and evening, trying to perfect certain skills that I knew that were lacking for me. 
and trying to also get my cardio to the next level because this was going to be a longer fight than the amateur fights. Amateur fights are three three-minute rounds, whereas a professional fight is three five-minute rounds. So those extra couple of minutes, obviously, you have to put in a lot more cardio for that. So the training for that was very intense. But as I was training for it, I realized that I wanted to do this and I really wanted to win, but it just wasn't what I should be doing with my life. I was kind of in a turning point. I guess I was growing up a little bit. I was realizing that the fighting wasn't really doing what I thought it was going to do for me mentally. It was kind of tearing my me and my wife apart too because she didn't really like the lifestyle I was leading with that. It was just a different kind of lifestyle. Um, you had people coming out of the woodwork that just wanted to be my friends that were never my friends before. And it was just, you know, it was kind of frustrating for me because I've never been that kind of guy. I just do my thing is because I want to do it. And because life to me is a journey and I just want to do it. It's not for no other reason. And I just realized that it was not what I wanted to do. So I fought that night. And as I fought, I was having pretty good success in the first round, knocked him down, um, thought I won the first round, second round, he humbled me pretty bad. Third round, it was pretty even. We were pretty much just both tired. And then he ended up getting the decision. So I realized after that fight that my, my eyes were swollen shut. I had an excruciating headache. I was slurring my words. I was just not really sturdy on my feet. So a couple of days go by, my eyes are still swollen shut. I got a whole lot of blood pooling in my face. And my wife's like, this isn't probably good. Let's, let's go to the hospital. So we went to the hospital. They did a couple of tests and basically said that you don't have anything broken. However, you have a very severe concussion and you probably need to take a break. So I thought about that. And as I was thinking about taking that break, I was actually in school already because I was, I was having this itch, I guess you would say, to really learn about human behavior and leadership processes and servant leadership. And I was watching the new leader that came into our organization, Tom Carr, and how he was kind of guiding us. And it was such a different leadership style than I had grown up with because I went to a military college. So military college was mostly autocratic leadership to an extent, but then I started to realize it was more of a principled leadership environment where the principles that you live by and that you believe in really guide your, your leadership concepts. And that's what Chief Carr had believed in as well. And as I was watching him really change our organization, you know, one person at a time, including myself, I was, I was blown away because I, you know, I read leadership stuff all the time and I listen to leadership um, talks. And a lot of times I read these books and, and I, and I watch videos and I, I do research on the people that have done them and they've never led anything. All they have done is wrote a book on their opinions of what leadership is. And for me, I, being living through something like that and seeing the actual interaction of a principled leader and him changing my entire thought process about the job was a very unique situation. And that's what I really wanted to go out there with my mission and really talk to other people about because I felt I had a unique experience that could really connect with people, not just on the fire side, but life in general, because we all have those challenges, and but it's how we deal with those challenges that really get us to the next step of our life. Okay, nice. Thank you. Um, now, after that fight, you also decided you were done with the pain meds. You, you were done with the alcohol. You, and you correct me if I'm wrong. You just you quit cold turkey. I did. I just stopped. I stopped drinking. Stopped taking all the meds I was taking. I stopped taking all the supplements, the protein shakes, creatine, the pre-workout, all that stuff. I just stopped and. Probably wasn't the best way to do it because I was really having 
some mental effects from that, but also some physical effects. I was tired all the time. I was, my moods were up and down. And I mean, really I was just taking so many over the counter chemicals and prescription drugs. It was just not a good combination. So it took me about eight months or so to really get out of that funk or fog, I guess you would say. And once I did, I really felt like myself again, communicating better. I was I'm interacting better at work. I was interacting better with my family. I was starting to do things more with my wife that I hadn't done for a long time. Just normal things that people do. But for me, I had pulled away from all of that stuff because I really didn't want to do any of that, you know, social interaction because I was just having a hard time with it. And that's really where everything kind of turned around for me. I was deep in school at that point. I was probably close to, let's see, six months or so into my doctoral program. So I was still trying to figure out if I could do it or not, to be honest with you. Because when I started it, it was, it was very uh, challenging because I had never done anything like that, obviously. So I was just diving into that, trying to get my mind right. And that took up so much of my time and so much of my focus that it really gave me something positive to focus on. And, you know, three years later, I graduated with my doctorate of education, very thankful to do that. And I learned so very much. And um, even with that being said, the more that I learned, the more I realized I don't know very much at all. So, and I say that a lot because, you know, a lot of people live on that education and think, oh gosh, I got a master's degree. I got a doctorate, a doctorate degree. I, I'm very smart. I'm like, Shh, I don't, I don't think that at all. I'm a, I'm a fireman that washed his BC vehicle yesterday. I, I think that there's a lot of value in that. And I say that because there's a lot of transition in the fire service right now with education and man, education is so important, so important. But if you've never done the job in the street, it's just not the same thing. You got to have education and you got to have experience. It's a little bit of both. It's not more of one than the other. It's got to be very consistent. I think we're starting to get to that. But back to my original point, the reason why I tell you that is because the education is what really taught me that I needed to get out there in the street and really learn the job. It's not just about running calls. It's not just about uh, doing the processes on the computer that you have to do. It's about those interactions with firefighters. Like that's how you lead people. You interact with the firefighters. You talk to them in the stations. You talk to them at the kitchen table. You see what works for them. You remember what it's like to be a firefighter. So when you get to that leadership position, you can have that conversation that they understand what you're talking about. And that's critical because a lot of times we, we forget we make positions, we make rank, and we move up, and we forget what it was like. And unfortunately, that takes us away from being you know, very good leaders. And I didn't want that to happen. That, that's what my mission is continuing today. I wanted to, if you're okay with it, because I know in those you know four or five years that we've been discussing, there's a lot of other stuff that was going on as well. And uh, again, there was there's so many different, and I, I touched on this before we even started recording, there's so many different things going on that ultimately brought you to where you are now. So I wanted to touch on, if you will, talk about tattoos. So I know that's something you really ended up going to during this period, and it was actually a healing process for you. Tattoos had always been an interest of me. When I was in college, I did get my first tattoo. My mom and dad took me to Savannah, Georgia from Charleston to get my tattoo because believe it or not, tattooing was not legalized in South Carolina until the early 2000s. So <laughs> that's a whole different conversation, but they took me there. I got my first tattoo. And then in college, I went to Savannah on my own and got a couple of more tattoos, nothing really big or anything like that. 
And then once I came into the fire service, I really wasn't doing any type of tattooing. I wasn't getting tattoos. I really didn't think about it. But after the fire, a new tattoo shop had opened and they were giving out free tattoos for responders that were on the event that day and for first responders in the area. Just small little tattoos. Like the first one I got was a number nine with angel wings and a halo over the nine for the nine guys. And I realized when I went to get that tattoo, it's, it's really small. It's on my, the inside of my right wrist. And as I got that tattoo, I, I just felt, I don't know, there's a feeling that I received from that tattoo that made me proud of having the tattoo, but it was also kind of a physical and a mental feeling too. So I, I went back a couple of weeks later and I designed a sleeve for my left arm that had nine angels, you know, a downed firefighter with rays of light, a very intricate tattoo that I wanted to have to honor the guys. And that process took, it was probably 10 or 12 sittings, a couple of hours each sitting just to get it right. And as I did that, I really enjoyed the feeling every time I was honoring the guys, but I also had some kind of it was a relaxing feeling once I finished that tattoo and it was something that I really enjoyed. And I just continued on with it and um, to the point to where I am today. And that's an interesting thing for me because I, you know, if you see me in shorts and a t-shirt, I have two leg sleeves, full leg sleeves from my um, hips all the way down to my ankles, shoulders to my hands or before my hands are covered and then my chest and my back too. So if you see me in shorts and a t-shirt, you don't really you, you, you can't really process who I am. You're like, oh, look at this guy. But, you know, when I go and I teach, I'm in a suit, so you can't see those tattoos. But I tell you that because a lot of people judge me as soon as they see me. And those tattoos have nothing to do with what's in my head or what's in my heart. And that's something I try to, to profess to a lot of people when I teach is that as I was traveling around, going to military installations and fire departments, police departments, even universities, I was seeing a lot of people in my classes that were getting tattoos or had tattoos that were visible. And I would just ask them randomly, hey, what does your tattoo mean? What does your tattoo mean? And they would tell me a lot of times it was related to some type of trauma or honoring somebody. And that really sparked an interest in me. And so then about that time, I was doing some research on tattoos and realized there's some healing properties to tattoos if you believe in them. And that's really how I dove into it more and more and ended up doing some research on tattoos and first responders and how it really helps them uh, get through these type of traumatic events. And there is something to that. There's a lot from the research that I did, you know, over 87% of the people that I interviewed, they were all first responders. And over 87% of all those responders had at least one tattoo that was to honor somebody fallen or to remember a trauma that, that had gone on in their life. So with those numbers really highlighted the impacts that tattoos can have. And that's really continued with my belief in that. I continue to get tattooed to this day, obviously not right now in, in our social distancing, but as soon as that <laughs> is relieved a little bit, I will continue with my tattooing. You're probably working on uh, new designs as we speak, just to, you know, what, what to add on to you. Oh, absolutely. I have a, I have a standing appointment pretty much every Sunday, as long as I'm not on shift at nine o'clock with my, uh, tattoo artist and you know we haven't been <laughs> doing it the last couple of weeks so but we'll be all right we'll get there that's a, that's a small <laughs> thing so you know, another thing i wanted to ask you about is you know you mentioned way earlier that there was no peer support it's not like you had a debriefing or anything afterwards but at some point you did go get some counseling at, at what point did you go and actually um seek professional help 
So when Chief Carr came to our organization, he came from Montgomery County, Maryland, and they were always big on mental health. They were always big on peer support. And so he brought that to our organization, but he was able to bring firefighters from FDNY that had worked on 9-11 and they were trained as peer support counselors. And they came down to Charleston to help us build our, Char our Charleston firefighter support team. So that was built um, by them as well as a couple of local individuals here that put it together. And once that occurred, I realized that I probably needed to go there to get some help. And that's where I went. And I uh, received treatment from a counselor there. I did something called EMDR, eye movement desensitization, reprocessing or remodeling therapy. And as I did that, it really changed my the way that I process not only the events, but my thoughts about the job and about people and about the mistrust of the system and things like that, I was able to really get my positive thoughts back to where I needed them to be successful. And after I did that for probably about a year or so, I, I really stopped going because I felt, I felt better. I felt like I had my mind where it needed to be. I felt like I could, um, self-assess myself and when I needed to go back for a, a tune-up I could go back but I felt really good at that point and I was also really learning a lot about the mental health side I was taking classes on uh, mental health training peer support training I was learning about how the mind operates surrounded by trauma what chemicals are released with trauma and there's really a chemical imbalance at times when you're dealing with trauma and if you don't understand that you don't understand why you're feeling a certain way. The first thing you do is go to something negative to make it feel better. And that's not really always the case. You have a chemical imbalance or a chemical um, dump in your body, if you will, and you try to suppress that with another chemical, say drugs, alcohol, prescription drugs, something like that. And if they're not prescribed for that specific chemical imbalance, then obviously that's not going to work. And for me, I didn't want to take any medication. I take zero medication today. It's just my mind is able to process it and hopefully overcome the way that I feel a lot of times. And that's usually um, pretty much from EMDR because I learned so many skills that I could use on myself to get me through that time. You also did some stress inoculation as well. Could you, would you mind describing that to our listeners? Stress inoculation was something I learned as I was reading uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's work. He writes a book. He wrote a book called On Combat. And he was talking about how the physiological stresses of our job really impact us to a point to where we don't realize it. And also, if we don't stress ourselves for the actual job activities, we're not going to be prepared for the job. So I took that a different route. I said, well, I was having a hard time reading about the information. I was having, having a hard time watching videos on the information, watching news reports. I didn't talk about the event for almost four years after the fire. That's going from nothing. And so I had to dig back into it and really learn about the items that I had kind of blocked out or put in the back of my mind. And that's really what EMDR allowed me to do with the stress inoculation. I was able to go and start reading the articles about the fire, watching the videos, really reading a lot of the information that included me in there. I'm reading reports that said the engineer on engine 11, which was myself, was inexperienced and uneducated, which was very true. But that's hard to read when you don't really understand that. So I pushed myself through that to the point I was in tears watching these videos and listening to the radio traffic. And I have 
I'd probably say eight to 10 hours of radio traffic. And most of that at the critical points of the event, I have memorized. And it's not because I wanted to, it's because I listened to them so many times. I wanted to get to the point to where I could dig out every little word that was coming from those transmissions to see what was going on. But also, so I actually knew what happened that day. I think it's critical that if you're on an event like that, you need to know what happened. I mean, it's easy to say, I don't want to listen to it. I mean, I did that for four years, but I came to a point to where I, I didn't, I didn't feel right about it. I, I felt, I, I felt bad about it because I, I was a part of that and I should know what happened to those guys. And I was going to classes where there were people that with good intentions, but they had never been to Charleston. They didn't know any of those guys. They had no idea of the culture of our fire department. And they were reading magazine articles and then going and standing in front of a class at major conferences talking about what occurred on that day. And I just thought that was very irresponsible. And I was very upset about that because I sat in the class with a guy that told, called himself an expert that talked about what happened on that day. And the order of what happened was actually incorrect. And he was talking about how specific engines were moved here and were moved there. And the, the items he was talking about, none of those engines were ever moved. They were there the entire time until the investigation was over with. So those were the things that really upset me. So the stress inoculation allowed me to dive into that research and into what actually happened that day from my recollection, plus interviewing the guys that were there as well to come up with a synopsis of what actually occurred. And that's how the stress inoculation allowed me to get through it. Because without that, I couldn't have read all that information or watched the videos or listen to the radio traffic, it would have been too difficult. Do you also think that process ended up helping out with kind of giving you the ability to, to speak about this publicly? Absolutely. It gave me the, to, the power to overcome not talking about it. Because again, at first I always said I didn't want to talk about it. And over time, I, I just didn't feel right about it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Everybody deals with it differently and that's okay. Some people don't want to talk about it and I 100% respect that and that's just fine. But for me, I had to talk about it. I felt like I would be doing a disservice if I didn't because I went to school for a reason. I didn't know what the reason was, but the reason was obviously when I graduated was I understood human behavior. I understood leadership. I understood crises that occur in organizations just when you don't make those progressive movements over time and you don't develop. And so I felt like I was in a situation where I had a message that people needed to hear and I just couldn't, I, I had to, I had to do it. I felt like something was pulling me towards it. And I completed an application to go teach at a conference and I got accepted. Luckily I was just David and I, was hoping that I could go. And I went there that April and I taught. And from there, it was seven years ago. And uh, from there, it's just been a roller coaster of travel and airplanes and hotels and strange foods and great people and organizations and universities. And it's been a humbling experience. And the, uh, the crazy thing was, that was not a plan of mine. I had, I had no plan I was going to do any of this. I don't, I don't enjoy doing that. People think I enjoy all of that. I don't... <laughs> not fun for me. I don't enjoy the social media stuff. I don't, if you notice, there's no videos of me. There's no YouTube. I don't do that stuff because I don't do this because I want to. I do this because I have to. If I don't do it mentally, I don't feel, feel good about it. I don't teach about any other events. I don't talk about any other fire departments. I don't teach about any other NIOSH reports. 
It's not what I did this for. I did this for one reason. June 18, 2007, honoring those nine guys and really trying to help people get past their post-traumatic stress that they're dealing with from being on this job for 10, 20, and 30 years. And and you're doing, you know, I, I was able to see you this October and it was absolutely amazing. Um, you know, this whole conversation we're having is really about your post-traumatic growth. I wanted to ask you, and I know the answer, but I want to ask anyway, the the biggest supporter throughout that post-traumatic growth for you, and if they weren't there, you may not be here. I know I've heard you say before. You know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> <You want> to... <laughs> My wife, Melissa, she's she has been the, the strongest support that I've ever had. She never left me. She never wavered with me. She never said, I'm going to, I can't do this anymore. I mean, that's, that's the easy way out. I mean, anybody can do that, but um, I think my mentality has rubbed off on her. <laughs> we don't take the easy way out. We uh, pushed forward and we, we took an oath and we took a vow and sickness and in health. And that was mental health as well. And she said she was going to stick with me and she did. She helped me get through all of this from the lowest of lows to, to where we are today. We're very blessed. And she, you know, she's the one that allows me to, to travel. And when I say allows me, she's the one that really works my schedule to ensure that I can work 24 hours. And when I get off my shift, my flight's ready, the plane, you know, plane's ready. I'm able to get my car when I get there. Somebody's picking me up, you know, food is ready at all. She does all of that stuff. So I, she keeps me, she keeps me focused and she does the things I don't want to do. What I want to do is I want to walk into an auditorium full of firefighters and talk to them and connect with them and motivate them and inspire them. The other stuff is just white noise to me. I don't, Again, I don't, the social media stuff and that stuff's important today. And, but it's very important that people know that I do not like any of that stuff. I do this because I want to do it in person. I want to talk to people. I want to connect with people. You're not going to find any videos of me during this entire quarantine of where I'm trying to talk to you or teach you, or I'm, I'm not doing that because I'm not a YouTube instructor. I'm a, I'm an in-person in your face live kind of guy. And I, I believe there's a lot of value to that. And my wife, She's the one that told me that because the first time I started rehearsing a lot of these classes and trying to make sure I got the information right, she just told me, she goes, you just got a different way of when you go, you just go. And that's pretty much it. I don't, I just have that one speed when I talk and she, she showed me that. And that's what really motivates me every day. And I'm just thankful that she's still here with me and that we're um, together 20 years together. It was actually her birthday yesterday. So I was on shift, but we got a pretty good birthday celebration for today, so it's going to be fun. That's that's awesome. Now, one of the other things, and I'm interested in asking you this, is is you know almost what eight or nine years ago, you actually attended church again after a pretty long absence, and, and I'm I'm curious about this because it's kind of, I guess, personal to me. I you know after twenty something years, the last few months have started to attend church again. And I'm, I was just curious if you're kind of having the same, if you had the same thoughts that I had, and it's simply, it's almost going in there, it's uncomfortable. And it's, it part of it is more than anything is, I have such a guard up that it was very awkward for how nice people were to me. And I was just curious if you were having the same type of thing, because my wife thinks I'm absolutely crazy when it comes to that. Yeah, that's natural. Anytime you go to a new place and you feel like you're, you don't really know what to expect and you feel like people are looking at you. And I went through the same thing. And um, at that point, I really wasn't 
I didn't think about it that much because I was really in kind of a I don't care attitude, I guess you would say at that point, because I was just trying to figure out life itself. But then as I started to really process that I did, I did feel that way. I, I just felt really intimidated. It was hadn't been in a while. And but my wife was right there with me. She held my hand. And sometimes I wasn't even paying attention. And I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm saying because uh, I was trying to work out things in my head. So, but there was value to that because that hour, hour and a half I was there, whether I was paying attention or not, my mind was really trying to work itself out about everything that was going on in my life, whether it was the treatment, the EMDR, going to work, um, just things that was going on at home. And then finally, you know, I started to pay attention and I, I was able to listen. I'd worked out enough in my head to where I was able to kind of understand what the, the sermon was, what the preacher was saying. And started to, you know, enjoy being there. And that really got me to, you know, to my next level of, you know, where I am today. Nice. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. I know I'm putting you on the spot with all this stuff. Um, let me ask you this now. Could, could you kind of talk about actually your kind of your organization on a mission and, and what you've been doing? And I mean, uh, you've, you're, you're an author, you're, you know, speaker, just, kind of plug yourself if you don't mind i know you talked earlier how you don't like plugging it but i think it's important for our listeners to know where to actually track some of your stuff down at so on a mission was something that i just had an epiphany of one day i was talking to my wife i I said i'm just on a mission she goes that's it right there and that's kind of what it has turned into so my website is drdavidgriffin.com and there's different tabs on there about where we've been um know books we've written we've written quite a few books now they're all on amazon or kindle or on the website my wife's written a book there's a bunch of articles on there you can read on the article section about really our journey i've I've tracked that since this entire process began you know long before any of this happened you know about 10 years ago so you can see the progressions of me as a leader but it's interesting because all the articles i've written for firehouse or fire engineering or fire rescue they're all on there too and as you read my writing you can kind of see how my mind has uh, grown and changed and matured over over the last decade which is a pretty cool process to see on the uh, find your mission tour page you'll see all the places we've been since we started this so um, we have a lot it's just incredible over 500 organizations um, universities, conferences, and uh, three different countries. So Canada, Mexico, United States, and three different languages, obviously English, French, and Spanish. I had translators when I went to Canada and Mexico to do the classes. So it gives you kind of an idea of where we've been, where we're going, and you know what we stand for and why we do what we do. Um, this has been interesting for the last, this has been actually 30 days as of today or yesterday that I haven't been on an airplane and that's the longest it's been in seven years usually I don't go three or four days without being on an airplane going somewhere and that's with my shift so I usually work around my shift schedule or when I was on days I would take vacation so it's uh it's very interesting the last month I've been home every night except for my shift and it's been kind of nice to reconnect with my my family and um, focus on the things that are important so hopefully once this all goes um, back to our new normal, if you will, and um, we know how to go back to social interaction that, you know, the mission is supposed to start back May 16th. I think I'm in Billings, Montana, and then the following week, I think I'm in Gulfport, Mississippi, and then it just kicks off from there, and off we go again. So we have 50 or 60 scheduled for the rest of the year, which should be a very uh, fun travel-oriented year. Um, 
and I'm looking forward to it. And again, like I said earlier, I don't do this because I want to. I do it because I really feel like I have to. I, I've definitely felt like something's been missing the last month without being able to, to interact and talk with people in person. You know, I've had a couple of requests to do something online and I just haven't done that because I, I again, I go back to I'm an in-person, in, in your face, live instructor. And that's just what I do. And I think there's more value in that. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm curious in this last month and with a little bit, you know, another month left, really, um, with this uh, all this pandemic stuff going on, since you can't be on the road, I imagine, though, you're just kind of shifting gears and putting your energy elsewhere, whether it's you probably have five or ten articles you're in the middle of or another book or whatever else. I can't imagine that you you're just kind of staying still at this point. Is that am I is it fair to say that? Is that a good oh, guess on me? Absolutely. Yes. I I've been writing, uh, but honestly, the biggest thing I've been doing is really spending time with my wife and spending time at home and eating meals together and cooking meals together and playing games and doing things that um, what other time in history of our life have we had to be home and work from home, but then when your work is completed, you can actually already be home with your family. And I really have been trying to reiterate that to people. Take advantage of the time that you have because some people aren't that blessed. There's there's many people out there that unfortunately they've lost their jobs. They, they may have lost their homes. They're trying to figure out where they're going to get food from. And if you're on the job and you're still working and you're still getting paid every two weeks and you're still going to work, you, you have to realize how blessed you are. So when you get off shift, you know, go home and focus on your family. That We'll go back to being a society and we'll go back to being close again and there'll be public functions once again. But right now, focus on your family, focus on the things that are important because in 20 years from now, what are you going to think about this time? And if you do those small things, you'll have some positive memories. I just can't imagine, you know, even downtown Charleston, I live in the city, you know, right in the Holy City. And we drive around the city on our little golf cart and I look at these businesses and I, my heart goes out to them because, I mean, these businesses have been here for, for decades, generations. And now some of them might not be ever opening again. It, my heart hurts for them because these, the people that have built this, our city at least, I'm talking about one city. They're going to lose everything. And now on top of that, you have a lot of people losing their lives. And it's just a really tough situation for our country. And we have to find some type of positive from that. And if that's your family, then that's my recommendation for you. But that's my long answer to yes, I am writing, but I'm trying to focus. <laughs> I'm trying to focus on the little things right now, to be honest. Well, no, but you you described everything that it's you're in Charleston. I'm in, in the Dayton area. It's the same thing here. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing, and it's a scary thing. And and again, you you fall back and you count your blessings if you are working. But as far as like what you said about the family stuff, I I 100%. And I've really been able to just reprioritize things, just get back to the basics, and what really matters. And I and it sounds like you're doing exactly the same thing. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your time. I want to get you out on a, a few quick questions. Now, these are random questions. Um, I call this the 25 questions. So what I have here is a list of, of 1 through 25 different questions, and they're more like pop culture, travel, or kind of stuff like that. Nothing nothing trippy, nothing really to, to trip you up, I guess. Um, are you up for doing a few of these? This sounds like an interview. So like at the end of some of your interviews, they do the 25 questions to where they ask you and you got like two seconds to answer. And it doesn't matter what your answer is. It just sees 
how you'd um, handle stress. So absolutely, I'm ready. Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make you. I'm not gonna do it rapid fire, and I'm not gonna oh. do the, make you go through all 25. I was ready. Uh, <laughs> how, how about so, you, just I actually, I just stood up and took my shirt off to get ready. To be honest with you. You had your shirt on because I had mine off the whole time. Yeah, okay, my fault. My wife tells me, she goes, you're doing a podcast, you don't really have to wear a shirt, you know, it's okay. No, it's exactly. All the all the news people right now, you know, they're not wearing pants. The whole Ron Burgundy stuff. I know, exactly. <laughs> How about you pick out a number and we'll go from there? I'm good with that. 25, it didn't hurt my feelings. That's easy. You want number 25? Oh, uh, well, I just pick one number, I'll pick number yeah, nine. Just, we'll just pick one number at a time. That's all. Number nine. All right. Here's your choices. Unlimited sushi or unlimited tacos for life? Mm, that's a tough one, but I'm going to go with sushi. Okay. What type of sushi? Smoked salmon. Mm, sounds good right now. Okay. How about it? See, that, was, that wasn't too difficult, though. What? Uh, what's another question? We'll another, go, uh, another number. Number one. <laughs> I love I love this one because uh, it just it's funny how people people where they end up at. What was your first job? My first job was a cable and telephone line installer for my baseball coach. I was uh, fifteen. Okay. Well, I was fourteen. I was fourteen. Excuse me. So you just kind of assisted him and and set up of everybody's cable and phone? Uh, Well, I crawled under the houses and ran the lines while he did the actual phone jacks and the cable jacks. This is long before, like, Wi-Fi, obviously. Well, this this is also before your MMA weight. Oh, my God. I was was 14 years old, so I was, like, I would think I was 4 foot 11 and, like, 85 pounds. So I could fit into the smallest of uh, crawl spaces, and he loved it. So, man, he... You know, he would he would buy me like gloves and bats and all that stuff to pay, f- you know, for my work because I was so young. But I loved it. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, what about an, another one? Um, one through twenty-five. Yes. Six. How do you manage stress? The biggest manager of stress for me is exercise. I exercise two, three times a day. It's uh, just what I do. It makes me feel better mentally and physically. Um, also do a lot of surfing, if you will. I like to surf. I like to be on the water. I like the wakeboard. So really a lot of the physical parts allow me to relax my mind. And then before I go to bed every night, I do read something to kind of get my mind in the right mood. Nice. Um, now, when you're working out, this is a bonus question I'll ask. What do you What are you listening to? It just depends. This morning I listened to a Sirius XM Turbo, which is the uh, alternative station that's just a lot of 90s hardcore. Uh, Nin- 90s, uh, yeah, hard rock. Yeah, it's good stuff. And some mornings I'll wake up and I'll listen to old school country, and then some mornings I'll wake up and I'll listen to new country. It just kind of depends on my mood. That's nice. I, and I like to I enjoy the variety. I have it's kind of my baby in my garage, is, and I know you would appreciate this because we're, we're really kind of close in age. Is I, I bought a uh, a row jukebox, like a hundred CD, legitimate row jukebox that you would see in a bar, or restaurant, oh, wow. twenty years ago or whatever. And I just I, I just have a variety on there. I mean, I could just go up and pick one song at a time and whatever mood I'm in, and and just hang out and listen. And that is has been one of my favorite things to do, especially now that the weather is finally broke. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice. How about I'll get you out of here on one more. Number eight. Ah, what's your favorite book? And you're not allowed to say your own. <laughs> I, would ne- I would never say my own. I think my favorite book, honestly, is On Combat by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. I just, the, the things that book taught me is, to this day, I go back to it. If I have a challenge at work, I go back to it. It's all highlighted and post-its all through. It's just a great book. Perfect. All right. Well, I can't thank you enough for, first of all, coming out, out to Beaver Creek, exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio, last year, and then also joining me on on this podcast today. Um, for all you listeners out there, uh, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, give us a rating, five stars, six stars if you're in a Tokyo Dome. There's That's an inside joke for like two people. But anyway, I, I appreciate your time, and, and thank you so much for everything you're doing, uh, really to the betterment of the fire service. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you. All right. Thank you, everybody. One more time, Dr. David Griffin.